Happy anniversary, everyone. As the calendar flips over to March, it officially marks one year of COVID in Canada. One year of virtual meetings, one year of wearing masks, one year of varying degrees of lockdown, one year of not knowing if our favorite stores will be open, one year of not going to concerts, sporting events, or movies, one year of working from home, one year of wondering if we're breaking the law just by hanging out with friends and family. Feel free to type in the chat bar, one year of what? One year with less hugs and physical connection, one year of insanely clean hands, one year of talking about superheroes who work in hospitals and not who wear capes, one year of watching church in our pajamas, one year of just being a little bit weird. There have been some really great aspects of the past 12 months as well. It's been a great year to spend more time with our immediate family. It's been a year to work on projects around the house. I know a number of people who have started exercising from home and introducing some good practices into their lives. It's fast-tracked both the church and the business to better engage in the digital world. I read recently that if you had asked some of America's top CEOs, how long would it take to make their companies fully digital, fully remote? They estimated about 18 months. Most of these same companies had it figured out in inside of three weeks. One year ago, Pastor Mel called Kelsey, David, Colton, and myself into his office on a Saturday morning and said, church can't meet in person. How do we put together an online service for tomorrow morning? In an, under an hour, we had a plan. Colton put together two beautiful acoustic songs. A sermon was taped in front of an empty auditorium audience, and the package was ready to go in less than 24 hours and streaming on YouTube. And then month after month, I think we've continued to improve our services and are now engaging with on-demand platforms, interactive Zoom meetings for our students, and so much more. While both the church and the culture at large have looked for and seized opportunities, we also need to stop and grieve what was lost. The challenge we face in grieving well is that we need to be given space and time to grieve well. We need to have an opportunity to share with our spouse, our friends, our family, what has been lost over the last year without feeling like we're just being a burden or just complaining. In writing about lament, the author Eugene Peterson says, in the wake of whatever has gone on or whatever wrong has been done, commentators gossip, reporters interview, editors pontificate, Pharisees moralize, then psychologists' analysis are conducted, political reforms are initiated, and academic studies are funded. But there's not one line of lament. There's no lament because truth isn't taken seriously. Love isn't taken seriously. Just because your life wasn't hit as hard as someone else's doesn't mean that you aren't allowed to grieve. I remember listening to a comedian and he was saying, have you ever seen a three-year-old lose their balloon and they start crying like it's the end of the world? We roll our eyes and think to ourselves, good grief, kid. It's just a balloon. And the audience laughs. And then he says, but to that child, that balloon is his whole life. How do you feel if your whole life was taken away? My soccer team last year was fantastic. I think we finished the season with 15 wins, two losses, and a tie. We were ranked first in the province for over 35 premier. Provincials were canceled. I don't know if I'll ever play soccer again. It sucks. Two months ago, I turned 40. My wife made a beautiful dinner, the kids made cards, the staff decorated my office. It was really nice, and I felt deeply loved. But it's not how I wanted to start a new decade. 
as brutal as those two stories are, they pale in comparison to what many others have experienced over the last year. Students were unable to have graduation ceremonies and had to give up sports and other hobbies. People were engaged to be married. One of the biggest and best days of your life. Wedding plans were canceled. Young parents were at home with school-aged kids and stressed out trying how to manage schedules and the challenges of virtual learning. Business owners were being told they couldn't open their storefront. Unemployment numbers soared. People in sales didn't know how to promote their product. And suddenly, working from home is a new reality. Grandparents were told they couldn't visit their grandkids. Nursing homes were in lockdown and Christmas felt like it was canceled. How do we make space and properly grieve all this loss? You can probably guess what today's message is going to be about. We're currently going through the life of David, one of the major characters found in the Bible. And today we've reached a pivotal moment. After years of David being on the run from Saul, a king who was jealous of him and wanted him dead. We learn of Saul's death and how David responds. We're going to read together a beautiful and thoughtful lament of David as he mourns his king and his king's son, Jonathan, his closest friend. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31. If you don't have a physical copy of your Bible, you can download the Bible app to your phone or tablet or even follow along on our church online platform. If you're new to church, the book of Samuel is found in the Old Testament, meaning it takes place before the birth of Jesus. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. As you find your passage, allow me to set the scene and give you a little bit of context. On one side of the valley is the army of the Philistine, a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites. Their army numbers thousands upon thousands. David, who is living with the Philistines, is told not to be part of the battle and sent back home because he couldn't be trusted. On the other side of the valley is the Israelites led by King Saul, and he's terrified by the enormity of the enemy arrayed before him. So Saul runs to God and asks God, what should I do? And God doesn't answer. He thinks to himself, you know the next best thing when God is silent? Talk to a witch. I'm not making this up. If you don't believe me, check out chapter 28 for yourself. So Saul finds a witch, asks her to call Samuel from the dead. He's obviously ticked off because he says to Saul in chapter 28, verse 19, the Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me, dead. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Chapter 31 begins with Saul having rejoined his forces, and the battle is about to begin. It's 31, verses 1 to 7. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they soon killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword, and he fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. A truly devastating defeat. How bad was it? 
Mount Gilboa was formerly the site of the Israeli camp and because of the scene of the Israelite and became the scene of the Israelite massacre. How bad was it? Not only did Saul, the first king of Israel, die that day, but so did three of his four sons. The one son who wasn't killed, Eshbaal, would later be referred to as Ishbosheth, meaning man of shame, for his apparent absence from the battlefield. How bad was it? After Saul's death, the Israelites lost all heart and abandoned their cities. The Philistines walked right in without any resistance and took over everything Israel had worked hard to build, showing how truly devastating the defeat really was. Saul was supposed to rescue Israel from the hands of the Philistines, and he ended up dying by their hands. The end of 1 Samuel. The Hebrew Bible has no breaks between 1 and 2 Samuel. It's broken up simply because of the length of the scroll. However, the opening words of our book show the beginning of a new era. This is a transition chapter that shows Saul's demise and David ascending to the throne. Verses 1 to 3. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. If you missed the message last week, let me give you a brief summary of the emotional roller coaster David has been on in the last few days. Having learned that the Philistine kings don't want him to fight against the Israelites would have been a huge relief for David. As you can probably imagine, it wouldn't be a, it would be a rather difficult sales job to become the Israelite king if you and 600 mercenaries fought against them with the sworn enemies. After traveling three days from the battlefield back to the home, which is Ziklag, David and his men are in relatively good spirits until they arrive to find their homes destroyed by fire and their families and livestock captured by raiders. These battle-hardened men fall to the ground weeping until they have no strength left. And outside of muttering that maybe it's time to kill their fearless leader, David, who is strengthened by God, finds the courage and boldness to rally his troops and chase down the Amalekites, who will pay for this cowardly attack. By God's providence, his invisible hand guides them to the raiders. They rescue their families. Everyone rejoices, and they head back home. Three days later, the messenger arrives with news of the battle, an outcome David is completely unaware of. In just seven days, he goes through two cycles of immense joy to incredible grief. Verses 4 to 10. What happened, David asked. Tell me. He said, the man fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he would not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. We've got a couple pretty big problems here. With your Bibles in front of you, take another look at 1 verse 1. Who did David and his army just finish defeating? The Amalekites. 
Why did David have to go after the Amalekites? Because they burned his home and captured his wife and kids. Take another look at verse 8. Who's standing in front of David delivering this devastating news? An Amalekite. Probably not a lot of extra grace at this moment. To add even more context, back in the book of Exodus, just after the Israelites had escaped from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, one of the first things that happens is that they are attacked as a vulnerable people. Want to guess who attacked them? The Amalekites. In Exodus 17, verse 14, God says to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Here's the second problem. These two stories don't add up. The reason I wanted to read chapter 31 today is so you could hear Saul uh, ask his armor bearer in verse 4 to run him through. Saul had no intention of being caught and tortured by his enemies. Do you remember what the armor bearer did? Nothing. Saul is the Lord's anointed king of Israel. Just like David, this armor bearer wants nothing to do with the king's death. So Saul takes his own life. That's not what the Amalekites had happened. The Amalekites said he was the one who, called, who killed Saul. He was the one who rescued him from the Philistines. And he is the messenger sent to bring good news. The narrator just continues to share the facts. At the close of chapter 31, he simply tells us, this is what happened. Like last week, there's no moral commentary, no mention of good or evil, just an expert witness telling us exactly what took place. Flipping the page to the first chapter of 2 Samuel, the, narr the narrator stays the course. No moral commentary, no mention of good or evil, just the facts. But who are you going to believe? The omniscient narrator or a lying Amalekite? Verses 11 and 12 we read this, Then David and all his men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. For the second time in less than a week, a day of mourning. You might expect rejoicing from David or his men. Finally, the man who sought to kill us is dead. But that's not the case. Israel's first king is dead. Jonathan, Saul's son, and David's closest friend is dead. The Israelites' lives are scattered across the hillside. Cities abandoned and captured by the enemies. Today is a day of mourning. The story continues. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down, and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. The Amalekite was trying to win David's favor, hoping that killing Saul would pave the way for David, and he would be lauded for his grand gesture. It did not work out so well for him. Despite the untruthfulness of his account, his own lips led to his death. While we don't know David's emotional state as he asked the rhetorical question in verse 14, I imagine he was appalled 
mixed with disgust. Why were you not afraid to lift your hand against the Lord's anointed? Like Saul's armor bearer and David before him, there's a deep sense of reverence for what God has done and set in place throughout the story. And the narrator has made it abundantly clear David did not ascend to the throne through any violence or disloyalty. One more thing before we move on. Did you notice the structure of the story? I don't know about you, but I would never tell a story this way. The narrator puts David's grief smack dab in the middle of the story. Whereas I probably would have saved it to the end. But watch what the narrator does. He begins the story with the arrival of the Amalekite. He ends the story with the death of the Amalekite. Inside both of those bookends are a conversation with questions and answers. And another conversation with questions and answers. But right in the middle is David's grief. Does this passage tell us about Saul's death? Most certainly it does. But the bigger idea is David's grief over Saul's death. And that's now where we will turn our attention. Verses 17 to 27. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan in order that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of those uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. In death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. O how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. There's much to say about this beautiful lament, but before we begin, I want to share something about the larger picture. The book of Samuel begins with a woman named Hannah praying to God to give her a child. God answers her prayer. Samuel is born. And do you know what happens next? Hannah prays a beautiful prayer of praise and thanksgiving unto God. 2 Samuel begins with David hearing that Saul is dead. And he will now take over as king of Israel. He prays a beautiful prayer of lament to be taught to all the men of Judah. These are are extraordinary reminders of a major theme in Samuel. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This humility of David is a profound expression of both personal and public grief. I appreciate how one commentator describes lament. A lament is a formal expression of grief or distress, one that can be written, read, learned, practiced, and repeated. A lament differs from the informal, spontaneous, immediate outbursts of grief like those in 1 verses 11 and 12. A lament is no less sorrowful or sincere, but it is a vehicle for the mind as well as for the emotions. A lament is an expression of thoughtful 
grief. A lament is an expression of thoughtful grief. It's written, thoughtful, carefully selected, honed and sharpened. We weep when a loved one dies, but that's not when we write their eulogy. A few days later, after we've wrestled with the intensity of the emotion, we begin to structure our thoughts and think about what we want to say and how we're going to say it. We may not feel the pain in the same way when we heard the news, but we enter into that pain and remember the devastating loss, whether the death of a loved one or a major event. You'll notice in verse 18 that this wasn't a one-time prayer, but something David wanted the men of Judah to be taught. He wanted them to remember those who had gone before them. Remember the pagan influence and how that hurt you. Remember the pain of loss and be better for it. I really enjoy sports, but sometimes I wonder what I like more. The game itself or the stories that take place behind the game. In Edmonton, we still celebrate the Oilers' five Stanley Cup wins between 84 and 90. And that loss to the hurricane still hurts 15 years later. But do you remember what happened in 1983? In 1983, the Oilers thought they were pretty hot stuff. First place in the Campbell Conference. More goals over the course of a season than any other team before them. Some young guy named Wayne scored 71 goals and added 125 assists. And in 1983, they lost to the Islanders in the Stanley Cup Finals. Four games to zero. I don't remember if it was Gretzky or Lowe or Messier. Maybe it was a mix of them. They said that after the loss of that first cup, they walked back to their dressing room and saw a room full of Islander players with ice bags all over their bodies, trainers bandaging up wounds, and that the Islanders just wanted it more. Being talented wasn't enough. They needed to remember the agony of defeat to spur them on. And it, obviously it worked because... The Oilers won four out of the next five cups. They remembered. Well, there is certainly more than one way to break down this lament. I find it helpful to look at it in four parts. The first part is seen in the bookends of this poem. You'll notice that both verses 19 and 27 have the same line. How the mighty have fallen. If you're taking notes, this is what it's called an inclusio. And gives us the major theme for the lament. Everything in the middle will serve as support or an explanation for this major theme. Remember, O Israel, how the mighty have fallen. The other three parts of this poem are equally broken up into two or three verse sections, beginning with uh, negate the victory in verses 20 to 21. Do you remember what started Saul's jealousy of David earlier in the book of 1 Samuel? After David, after defeating Goliath, Saul brought David into his household, and wherever he sent David and whatever he asked him to do, the young man was incredibly successful. So successful that people came out singing, what? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So what do you think the Philistines were singing about in regards to their victory back home? David knows he can't censor the newspapers of Gath or stop the broadcasts and the sports bars of Ashkelon, but it makes him sick to think that they are cheering the death of his fellow countrymen. If your favorite team loses the championship game, do you really want to watch their parade? Implied, 
but not stated is that those uncircumcised Philistines will also praise and cheer their pathetic god, Dagon. Makes David sick to his stomach that the enemy won and he doesn't want anyone to celebrate such agonizing defeat. The next two sections, I believe, are of great importance for us today. I'm calling verses 22 to 23, Remember the Good. Let's read them again. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan in life, they were loved and gracious, and in dead they were parted. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Did you hear that? It makes sense that David would speak well of Jonathan. They were best friends and incredibly close. But David also speaks well of Saul. The same Saul who threw a spear at his head twice. The same Saul who sent an army to kill him over and over again. The same Saul who made the last number of years of his life absolutely miserable. But this lament doesn't focus on the bad. It remembers the good. We'll get to the loss in just a moment, but we must not rush there. In life's most painful moments, we must also spend time remembering the good. In mourning the loss of mom, the loss of your husband, the loss of your closest friend or family member, what are the good stories that you remember? What are the times you laughed together? What are some of your best conversations? What were experiences that you shared? When you close your eyes and think of a loved one, what memories come to mind? While this lament is certainly over the loss of life, we also lament another loss. How many of us have experienced a move and thought of the deep shift that was taking place, whether you moved yourself or a close friend or family member moved away? A change in our career, especially if unexpected, can leave us with this sense of loss, and many of us are mourning what a year of COVID has caused. But in the midst of this change, will you remember the good? Finally, verses 24 to 26 remind us to remember the loss. Listen again to the emotion of David. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on the, your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. I think regularly of why some men hate coming to church. How many men think, you know what I'd like to do with a couple extra hours on my weekend? Sing some songs, listen to a boring speaker for 30 minutes, and share my feelings. Sounds like a good time. And yet here we have David, this incredible leader, this fierce warrior, writing arguably the most beautiful lament found outside of the psalm. So how do you reconcile these two together? Aren't men supposed to like sports and camping and fixing stuff? Doesn't that define manhood? But it's not the picture the Bible gives us. David is obviously a manly man, fighting a giant, leading men into battle. Women are swooning for him. He attracts people to follow him without even trying. And two chapters ago in 1 Samuel 30, 
And right here in 2 Samuel 1, he weeps until he has no strength left. Showing us proper outlets for our emotion. David is honest and he remembers what was lost. Another quote from Eugene Peterson this morning that really hit me. Pain isn't the worst thing. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. The worst thing is trivializing the honorable and desecrating the sacred. Part of the tuition of the course I just finished was meeting one-on-one with a counselor. I was kind of neutral about the whole thing. I've gone to counseling before. I certainly see value in it. But I didn't know what we would end up talking about. But I'm glad I went. I entered with no agenda, and it took a few minutes to land on a topic that would have long-term impact. But we got there. Might surprise you, might surprise some of you, that I'm actually a pretty high-level introvert. I don't like to talk. I'm happy spending time by myself. If my wife wants to go out with her girlfriends pre or post-COVID, the answer is always yes. Give me some time alone. But one of the challenges of how I'm wired is that I don't always share my thoughts. If something's bothering me, I just kind of keep it to myself and I mull over it. It can be a problem. The counselor gave me some simple advice, and it's even it's helped exponentially over the last six months been life-changing. Find people to share with. You're probably aware that mental health issues have been spiked since the beginning of COVID. I'm not sure if it, um, what exactly the reasons are. There's probably a bunch. Isolation, lack of physical touch, inability to leave the home, kids running around and never leaving. The list goes on and on. I wonder how many of us would benefit from a space to lament and a friend to talk to. We feel this immense pressure to always be at our best behavior, never to complain. And you know what the Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always, give thanks in all circumstances. Absolutely true. The Bible absolutely says that. But you know what else is true? That 42 of 150 psalms, just shy of 30%, are psalms of lament. There's a time and a place to express your grief. Remember the good. Remember the loss. Probably see the application coming. Who can you get together with? Over the phone, a video platform, on a walk together, and give an honest, heartfelt summary of the last year. What is the good that came out of COVID? Have you accomplished some projects around the house? Maybe you've started exercising. You've strengthened your relationship with your spouse. Maybe you've started reading more, started another hobby. What is the loss from COVID? You know, I miss seeing my grandkids. I miss getting hugs from friends. I lost my job. Money has been awful. Couldn't hold a funeral for a loved one. Vacations were canceled. Maybe this is an opportunity to show the world around us how to grieve well and invite others also to remember the good and remember the loss. It's beautiful, a picture David gives us in our passage this morning as we head to the communion table. We are reminded 
that in Jesus we have a true and better David. The scriptures say that he was a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. In Luke 19, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, knowing his death was coming soon, he saw the city and he wept over it, knowing what was in store. In John 11, verse 35, we read the shortest verse in all of scripture. Jesus wept. One of his close friends had died and he was both saddened and furious at what sin had brought into the world. And on the cross, looking over both those who love him and those who hate him, he showed a level of grace and forgiveness that would forever change the world. His body broken for us to make us whole. His blood shed for us that we might be given eternal life. A life that is coming where he will wipe every tear from our eye. Let us take the bread and the cup together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that the scriptures cover the whole spectrum of emotion. We thank you that there is laughter and joy. We thank you that there is lament and grief. We thank you for all the other emotions that you talk about in your word. And God, may we be reminded how to grieve well. We would remember the good, that we would remember the loss, and we would know the proper place and the proper people to share that with. May we also be the good news that goes out into the world, giving other people the opportunity, not complaining, but an opportunity to grieve over what has taken place over the last year or other things that have happened in their lives. And may we be the good news going out into the world, pointing people to your son, Jesus Christ, who ultimately will take away every tear from our eye for those who believe in him. We pray this in your holy name.